Hello and welcome to the Apostolic Church Liverpool podcast. We hope the message you're about to listen to will inspire you, will be a blessing to you and give you perspective in life. For more of such messages, you can visit our website at www.tac-lona.org.uk You can also access other messages and resources from our YouTube channel, The Apostolic Church Europe. We hope you're blessed and inspired by today's message. God bless you. Here's the message. My work for today is already made easy by that uh, recap. Um, so I would, I would, I can easily jump to where we stopped last week and pick it up from there to, to continue. Um, the, the facilitator that is supposed to take chapter nine actually reached out to say, since chapter nine is still in the flow of this eight to ten, why not just do a quick um, um, overview of that and continue the flow rather than having to break eight to ten and do eight and ten and then come back to chapter nine? Um, and so I will just quickly um, plug in chapter nine to where it should be, as it were, and then we'll try and wrap up with chapter ten within the time that we have gotten. But before we proceed, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to feast together at the table of your word. We thank you for the privilege we've had over the months or the weeks gone by as we began this deep study through the book of First Corinthians and the message that you have for us as individuals, as families, and more especially as a church together. We ask, oh God, as we continue in that journey today, you open our eyes to see the things you want us to see and you open our hearts to receive with meekness the engrafted word that is able to transform our lives and save our souls ultimately. To you be all the glory in Christ Jesus and filling in with great. Amen, amen, and amen. Um, so just like Pastor said, the main subject of these three chapters that is um, forming this continuum is about liberty and how to handle that. And while Paul is speaking specifically into the question of food sacrifice to idols, I gave us a few contemporary issues, if we recall, from last uh, week about um, some other things that we could start thinking about because really food sacrificed to idols is more or less not an issue for very many of us um, with with where we are and what we believe in that sense as opposed to the context in which the Corinthian Christians were living in the first century. So some of those questions are on the screen and we can begin to put, we can add very many other questions to that. And when we are running through these principles that Paul is pointing us to, as to how to respond to disputable matters, how to come to individual conclusions that would guide your conscience and your actions in how you respond, let's apply those principles to whatever matter it might be, whether it's on this list or not, whether it's about Christians being in politics or about watching certain kind of movies or about drinking certain kind of things or whatever, or wearing certain kinds of things as the case uh, may be. So I'll jump to where we were. We, we looked at chapter eight, 13 verses last week, and we concluded that Paul was saying through that chapter that it's not just about knowing the truth, but being able to balance that truth with knowledge. And he spoke about that with respect to the issues of knowledge in Corinth, the issues of love 
amongst the Corinthians and conscience of the believers that made up the church in the sense that not everybody's on the same level. Not everybody, um, based on their backgrounds, based on the journeys they've been on with God, not everybody is seeing all these issues the same way. And that's okay. They are not expected to, uh, when we talk about unity in church, unity is not uniformity. Unity doesn't necessarily mean that we see life the same way, we think and talk and dress and do everything the same way. Unity is that in the midst of our differences, whatever those differences may be, we are still able to come to that common ground of what binds us together, namely our faith in God, and still be able to learn from one another, grow together, knowing that neither of us is the perfect one, but that all of us are a work in progress. And so the... If you are reading these three chapters at a stretch and you finish verse 13 in, in chapter 8, and I can read that from my Bible here, and then you turn to the first verse of chapter 9. Remember we said that these things were not exactly separated in the original manuscript. You will feel like Paul is talking about something else. You will feel like, where is Paul going with this new twist that he brings into the story or into whatever he was trying to say? But by the time we get to the latter part of that chapter, we begin to see that it's all making a perfect message or a perfect sense. It's still the continuation of what is started in chapter 8, which you will conclude in chapter 10. But in chapter 9, it dwells on some things that actually I think as a church, we also need to um, pay cognizance to. So what I'm going to do again is I'm going to read it. I'm going to read the chapter. Um, I'll first of all read the first half of it and then the last half of it and just quickly um, summarize the points therein. Um, as I'm reading, I might pause to give some expansion as case may be. And again, I'm reading from the Living Bible, which is uh, a paraphrase. I prefer that for this kind of um, approach that we're taking so that we can listen to it almost as though we're listening to a sermon that is written in a manner of speaking, almost as though we, we are listening to Paul himself speak um, and, and the message then kind of comes alive. So it makes it easier for us to cover lots of ground um, without having to do much exposition in that sense. So from chapter eight, he was talking about food sacrifice to idols, and then he gets to chapter nine, verse one, and Paul starts talking about the fact that he's an apostle. So I read, <clears throat> I am an apostle, God's messenger responsible to no mere man. I am one who has actually seen Jesus our Lord with my own eyes and, and your changed lives as a result of my hard work for him. So if in the opinion of others, I'm not an apostle, I certainly am an apostle to you for you have been one to Christ through me. Before I move on to chapter, uh, verse three, we all know that in all the epistles that we consider, Paul always brings this issue up because all through his ministry, some people continue to contest the fact of whether or not he's supposed to be an apostle. Uh, because to be recognized as an apostle in the first century in the early church means that you must have been, there are two major um, qualifications, basically. You must have seen the resurrected Jesus, and he must have empowered you, given you a mandate and some sort of ability to wrote some kind of wonders that will confirm your calling. Um, and so some people believe since Paul was not part of the 12 apostles that were called, he shouldn't refer to himself as, a, as an apostle. But he keeps arguing that I saw the resurrected Jesus. Even if not while he was appearing to this person and that person, he appeared to him um, on his way to Damascus in his most glorified form, you could argue. And of course, 
gave him a mandate and empowered him there, thereby to do all sorts of wonders. Bible records how in the days of Paul, handkerchiefs that had touched his body would be sent out to many people and they'd be getting healed. So those were things that kind of confirmed his apostolicity. And if there was any church where Paul was really successful, it was in Corinth, in spite of how difficult it would naturally be to be successful in Corinth. Remember when we were giving the overview of the context of Corinth and we're using the analysis of New York plus Las Vegas plus all these kind of different issues coming together in one city. There is immorality, there is politics, there is all sorts of um, things that would be naturally, that would make ministry naturally difficult. And yet in that same context, Paul planted a very successful church. So now he's coming from that argument to say, I'm an apostle, but he's going somewhere, verse three. This is my answer to those who question my rights because some people were questioning his rights as an apostle. Or don't I have any rights at all? Can't I claim the same privilege that the other apostles have of being a guest in your homes? In other words, when the other apostles come to Corinth, when Peter comes to Corinth, when the brothers of Jesus, Jude that wrote the epistle of Jude, James that wrote the epistle of James, and people like that, when they come to all these other churches as apostles, they are honored in certain ways and they receive some benefits um, because they have a right to it just by the mere fact that they are apostles. And Paul will go on in that same sense. So verse four again, don't I have any rights at all? Or can't I claim the same privilege the other apostles have of being a guest in your homes? If I had a wife and if she were a believer, couldn't I bring her along on these missionary trips just as the other apostles do? And as the Lord's brothers, in this case, James and Jude, and as the Lord's brothers do, and as Peter does. And must Barnabas and I alone keep working for our living while you supply these other people? In other words, all these other apostles are working full time and they are getting, as it were, their payments for their service from the congregations that they are pastoring or that they have oversight over. But in the case of Paul and Barnabas and all these missionary tra uh, trips that they are going on to, they keep working to make their money to continue to fund the gospel as opposed to receiving anything as it were from those churches. Must Barnabas and I alone keep working for a living? Why you supply these other apostles? What soldier in the army has to pay for his own expenses? And have you ever heard of a farmer who harvests his crop and doesn't have the right to eat some of it? What kind of shepherd takes care of a flock of sheep and goats and is not allowed to drink some of the milk that comes from those animals? That's it. And I'm not merely quoting the opinions of men as to what is right in this regard. I'm telling you what God's law says. For even in the law, in the Old Testament, the law that God gave to Moses, he specifically said that you must not put a muzzle on an ox to keep it from eating when it is treading out the wheat. Many of us will be familiar with oxen when, you know, all these cow-like animals that you, they used to plow the ground and do all sorts of agricultural work. Even God gave an instruction in the Old Testament that when you are using these animals for those sort of mechanized farming, ensure that you don't block their mouths. As they are working for you, let them also be able to eat something as they are doing it. And Paul is saying that, do you suppose that God was only thinking about cows or oxen when he said this? After all, the oxen cannot even read the Bible and they don't even know there was such a law. It was for us. Wasn't he also thinking about us? Of course he was. He said this to show us that Christian workers should be paid by those they help. Those who do the plowing and those who do the threshing should expect some share of the harvest, verse 11. 
we, namely Paul and Barnabas, we have planted some good spiritual seed in your souls. So is it too much to ask in return for mere food and clothing? Verse 12, you give them to others who preach to you, and you should. He's not saying you shouldn't. That's the right thing to do. But shouldn't we have an even greater right to them? Because we planted this church for goodness sake, and we have labored extensively in your midst more than all those visiting apostles for goodness sake. Yet, we have never used this right, but supply our own needs without your help. We have never demanded payment of any kind for fear that if we did, you might be less interested in our message to you from Christ. Verse 13 and 14. Don't you realize that God told those working in his temple to take for their own needs some of the food brought there as gifts to him? And those who work at the altar, don't, don't you realize that they get a share of the food that is brought by those offering it to the Lord? In the same way, and this is where I will stop for the first half, in the same way, the Lord has given others that those who preach the gospel should be supported by those who accept the gospel. Those who preach the gospel should be supported by those who are listening and receiving the seed of the ministry of those who preach the gospel. And of course, um, the fact that I'm speaking about this, let me just give a disclaimer to say there is no personal agenda about this. And of course, even Paul will reiterate that as we move on to the second half of that. But he's going somewhere. But to get to where he was going, in light of what we have read in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient, we see that um, categorically shortly. But he's saying that in light of that, let me give you an example about this whole issue of liberty using my own life. Let me give you an example in terms of the rights that I have, for which even though I have those rights and those rights are 100% legal, 100% justified, I still choose to deny myself of those rights for certain reasons and is going to give those reasons. So by the time we begin to look at the example that Paul gave of himself in this chapter, even though it's a money related matter, and then we move on to chapter 10 and see some other examples he gave from the Old Testament, we'll be able to come to a conclusion of certain test questions that you can ask yourself about any disputable matter that can help you to conclude for yourself that about this and about that, how should I approach it? What should I do? What would be the most God-glorifying thing to do, for instance? And we'll get there by the time we're wrapping up um, this couple of chapters. But yeah, just a few things I want us to spotlight from how he defended his rights to receive support from the Corinthians in those first 14 verses there about that we've read. That should be read um, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 14, not 15 to 27. So in verse 1 to 6, it says, reason number one, I'm an apostle. And the way you are treating all the other apostles, I deserve to be treated as well. In fact, I deserve to be treated better than them because I have, quote and unquote, more claim to you than they do. By God's grace, it was myself and Barnabas that planted this church. By God's grace, it was Barnabas and I that labored for very many months to ensure that this church had gotten to the level that it had gotten to. And you remember those things you read in verse 4 to verse 9 there about in chapter 1, about how you described that church and were like, wow, what a church, before we then started hearing of all the other issues that came with them. So first, is an apostle and he should be treated as such. And as I'm listing this point, may I also suggest that even as a congregation or even as, a, as an individual, even as a family, as the case may be, to also be asking ourselves in retrospect or in introspect rather, that 
how do we, what principles can we extrapolate from this? Apart from the whole issue of liberty, in what ways am I falling short in reciprocating what Paul is describing here to say, those that bless us by the word, those that preach to us, those that teach to us, uh, that we, we, we give back in that in the manner of speaking to them. Because our church context perfectly fits what is being described here. We all know that by the grace of God, Pastor Davis is not being paid by the church. Myself, I'm not being paid by the church. And we are not hinting that to say, we are saying we want you to start giving us money. By no means. But we are emphasizing the fact that Paul is laying some principles here that are very key and very justifiable for the blessing after all of the congregation of the flock, that when some people are nourishing you spiritually, they deserve to be nourished back materially in that sense, especially in a scenario where they are not asking for it or they are not laying claims to it, even though they have those claims as God himself has put it there. So the second example of justification is this human experience. All of us or most of us that are working, whether you are, whatever kind of work it might be, you are either earning weekly or you are earning monthly. You look or, or daily as the case may be. You look forward to that. You work because you know you are going to get something. And that's, that's what he's saying by a workman deserves his wages. He has labored for it. He should get it. And then he gave an example from the Old Testament law, which we saw, don't muzzle an ox when it's working, even though it's an animal that can't speak. Whether or not you say you should eat or not, he probably can't speak. He probably would, would still obey by force. But then even God gave that principle as a lesson, not just about animals, as Paul was saying here, but also for us to learn from. And then it goes on to the time of the priests and how that the priests are meant to be catered for by what people bring for sacrifices. That's why when they got to the promised land, there was no, no plot of land that was marked out for the Levites because the expectation is that all the other 10 tribes will take care of the Levites. By the time they come for all the sacrifices that they do and things like that, God has put that in place so that the Levites will not be in want. And lastly, Jesus himself taught it. He taught it in Luke, it's recorded in Luke chapter 10, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 10. Um, especially verse 7 to 8, that as ministers of God, go wherever he sends you. And when you get there, know that you deserve to be taken care of by those that you are ministering to. Whatever they present before you, accept it with joy. I'm glad to say by God's grace, and this is, this is not to, to, to say whether or not I deserve this or anything, it's simply by the grace of God. But my recent trip to Nigeria, I was, I was well treated by those that hosted me. Like from the very moment I was picked up at the airport to the moment I was taken back to the airport to come back, it was an executive treatment. And it's not because I have invested as such in that sense in my own way of looking at it. I don't even feel that I deserve such a treatment. But that's the principle that even God's word itself has laid down. That's what Jesus thought when he sent out the disciples. Go wherever you go and trust that you will be taken care of because he, he has given that mandate. If he's sending you on an errand, he pays your transport fare. That's God for you. And that's why it will look like as ministers of God, for instance, in this assembly, we won't ask any, anybody for anything specifically because we have the understanding that at the end of the day, God takes care of us. So that's just by the way, I thought to mention those principles for those that might need to hear it. Now let's move on to how it then comes to defend his right to refuse to receive those things. He's saying, I have a right to receive them, but he's also going to go on to defend his right to, re to refuse to accept those things that he justifiably 
should accept. And that's the latter part of chapter nine. So from verse 15, it says, yet I have never asked you for one penny. And I'm not writing this to hint that I would like to start receiving pennies from you now by no means. In fact, I would rather die of hunger than lose the satisfaction I get from preaching to you without charge. I tell you, there is a joy that comes from knowing that you are serving God without charge, that you are, you are pouring out without quote and unquote expecting something, especially material wise in return. And I, I can begin to share testimonies upon testimonies about that, but I won't get into that just now. Um, it goes on to say in verse 16, for just preaching the gospel is not any special credit to me. I can't keep from preaching it even if I wanted to. In the KJV, this was where he said, woe be unto me if I preach not the gospel. I would be utterly miserable. Woe unto me if I don't, verse 17, if I were volunteering my services of my own free will, then the Lord would give me a special reward. But that's not the situation. For God has picked me out and given me this sacred trust, and I have no choice. So under this circumstance, what's my pay? It's the special joy that I get from preaching the good news without expense to anyone and never demanding my rights, verse 19. And this has a real advantage. What's the advantage? I'm not bound to obey anyone just because it pays my salary. Yet I have freely and happily become a servant of any and all so that I can win them to Christ. Verse 20, when I'm with the Jews, I seem as one of them so that they will listen to the gospel and I can win them to Christ. When I'm with the Gentiles who follow Jewish customs and ceremonies, I don't agree, even though I don't agree, but because I want to help them. Verse 21, when, the hidden, I, with, when with the hidden, I agree with them as much as I can, except of course that I must always do what is right as a Christian. And so by agreeing with them, I can win their confidence and help them as well. And verse 22, when I'm with those whose consciences bother them easily, in other words, those we are called weak Christians, I don't act as though I know it all. And I don't say they are foolish. The result is that they are willing to let me help them. Yes, whatever a person is like, I try to find common ground with them so that he will let me tell him about Christ and let Christ save him. This is where the KJV says, I become all things to all men that I can by all means win some. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. I became all things to all men that I might win some. Verse 23, I do this to get the gospel to them and also for the blessing I myself receive when I see them come to Christ. Now in verse 24 to the end of the chapter, it gives an example of a race. And Pastor gave that analogy as well, just before we started. It says, in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets first prize. So run your race to win. And of course, for the Corinthians, this is not a strange analogy. The Olympics that we are doing today had started in the Greek lands as far back as the first century. They are familiar with running to win, running by the rules and the kind of ceremonial um, awards that come to those that indeed win. So he's saying in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets first prize. So run your race to win. To win the contest, you must deny yourself many things that will keep you from doing your best. An athlete goes to all the trouble just to win a blue ribbon or a silver cup. But we do it for a heavenly reward, glory to Jesus, for a heavenly reward that never, never disappears. So I run straight to the goal with a purpose in every step. I fight to win. I'm not just shadow boxing or playing around. KJV says I'm not just beating the winds 
Like an athlete, I punish my body, treating it roughly, training it to do what it should, not what it wants to. Otherwise, I fear that after enlisting others for this race, I myself might be declared unfit and ordered to stand aside. That's in verse 27 where it says, having done all this, that he himself might not be a castaway. And we'll look at that first because, again, that's one of the scriptures some people point to to say you can lose your salvation. See, even Paul is saying that after all these things he has done, it is possible that he will not make heaven. That's not what he's saying here. And we'll get um, to that point just when we get there to make that point as a side comment. But here are the three or four things to note from this other part. So he defended his right to refuse the support that he has the right to receive. And that's what he did in verse 15 to 27. Again, not verse 1 to 14. So I've mixed both slides together earlier on. And he said he's doing this for majorly three reasons. The first reason is for the sake of the gospel. And we know today that part of the reason why some people will not be open to Christianity is because of how some other people have bastardized Christian ministry in the name of prosperity gospel or the, the way we see all sorts of unbelievable things or unbelievable emphasis on money that are going on in the name of being a Christian. And that puts up some, some people, especially those in, in, in a context like ours in the Western world, that things are, there are systems that work. You put in the effort you should put in, you get what you should get. And even if you, you are in a position where you can't put in the effort, there are still some support that you will get depending on your circumstance and condition. And so for people like that, they become even more hostile to Christianity when they see that some people are just in need for some gain in the manner of speaking, especially the ministers. And they are telling you, okay, today is September 9, it's 9-9, so if you can sow 99 pounds, you get 99 miracles or something. Um, and all those kind of funny things that we keep hearing here and there. Those things stand in the way of the gospel. As much anointing as that particular minister of God may carry, and some of them are genuinely anointed because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. But at the same time, they are standing in the way of delivering the potentials of the anointing and graces that God has given unto them because of this overemphasis on money. Secondly, it says he's doing it for the sake of the sinner. And that sinner can be a Jew, it can be a gentile, it can be anything. It says, I become to when it's with the Jew. He acts like a Jew. You know, sometimes if you read things about Paul, both in Acts of Apostles and then throughout his epistles, sometimes you could almost feel like Paul is inconsistent. Because sometimes he's saying this, and some other time he's saying what sounds like the exact opposite, or doing what sounds like the exact opposite of what he's talking about. In, in Galatians, for instance, when he was writing that very passionate letter to the Galatians, he said how that he confronted Peter to his face. Ah, but Peter, you are, you are misbehaving. Because when you were with this kind of people, you acted like this, and then you were with, I mean, some other people came into the camp, and then you started distancing yourself from the Gentiles and things like that. Why are you being inconsistent? Let them know the truth and act as such. But even Paul himself will do some things that are, Practically things that Jewish people would do, which they are no longer under the obligation to do by reason of the gospel of grace, which he is a champion for. So we would see times that it would be said of him that he went into a temple and he shaved his head and he did some practices here and there and things like that. But that is not Paul being inconsistent. That is Paul being all things to all men. 
So when he's with the Jews and he knows that the Jews are very, very particular about their laws, before you can even gain an entrance to begin to speak to them, they want to see you as one of them. And indeed he's a Jew. So why should he act contrary to being a Jew when he's with Jewish people? And so when he's with the Jews, he says, I'm a Jew. But, <laughs> sorry, excuse me. But when he's with the Gentiles, then he's free to also express the kind of Christianity that someone that is that used to be under some bondage of idolatry is now free to experience. And so he will act like a Gentile. And when he's with the Eden, for instance, when he preached on Mass Hill in Acts 17, to those Greek uh, philosophers, he would come and approach their message, not from the place of um, bringing in the gospel about Jesus Christ, but to start from where they are. They are worshiping all these very many gods. And then he comes to them and says, there is an altar that you said is to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that unknown God that you don't know as though he's like one of these other gods. But by the time he would go into his message, citing and quoting from references and sources that the philosophers themselves would be, I mean, would be very conversant with, they came to a conclusion that he's talking about a God that is even greater than all the gods that they had. A God that you cannot worship in a temple, he says in Acts 17, 24. But these kind of temples cannot contain him, cannot, cannot house him, and things like that. So it would start from where you are, and take you to where he believes God wants you to be. And then lastly, he says he does it for his own sake. He's doing all these things, denying himself of, of this right so that he doesn't stand in the way of the gospel. He's doing these things so that he can, again, not stand in the way of the gospel because of the persons or people that he wants to save, but to see saved. He's not the one saving them. It's the Holy Spirit that is doing its work, but he is the vessel. And then lastly, he's also doing this because he's not seeing himself like just any other Christian. Again, we've said it here and in many other series that we've done earlier on, that the fact that you are a Christian, if you are genuinely saved, you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you've accepted what he has to offer, you are heaven bound, your salvation is secure. However, it's not every Christian that will get to heaven and be, and be celebrated with a reward as someone like Paul would be. And that's not because that... Um, they are going to lose their salvation or God will then change his mind and send them to hellfire. It's just that they've not put in the discipline that they need to earn the kind of rewards that they are hoping to earn. And so our experience in eternity, we have all the rest of our lives to set the tone for it. And that's the sobering reality of Christianity because at the end of the day, yes, we are all going to be with God and, and be with Jesus for all of eternity. But what that experience of eternity will look like, and eternity is a long time, you get to determine it by virtue of your works and your service and especially your disciplines on this side of eternity. And discipline simply means giving up something that is good or even something that is better because you have your eyes on what is best in that, in that sense. <clears throat> I just thought, I mean, Pastor was mentioning uh, this a while ago about how athletes don't eat anything. There's just this few seconds clip about Ronaldo and some of us might have seen this um, when, let me go back a bit, of course, yeah, when um, during Euro 2020, yeah, there was something that happened and he had to give um, a, a, a speech. And then before he started the speech, there were three bottles in front of him, two bottles of Coke and one of water, and he took away the bottles of Coke and, and took the water to say, drink water, don't drink that. And of course, we know that we speak of Ronaldo now as one of the greatest of all time, together with Messi. But this is part of what has made it possible for someone that started on the global stage at 18 to still be playing at 36, 37, and still be delivering. 
because of the disciplines that he has given to himself. So this is just like some 40 seconds of clip about that. That's, that's just about us to kind of just put that principle in perspective. I believe we can all readily relate with that. So in chapter 9, in summary, what is Paul saying? Paul is simply saying that our rights, our authority must be balanced by discipline. And that if we want to serve the Lord and win his reward and his approval, if we want to stand before him and, and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, we have to pay the price. And of course, it empowers us to do that. We don't pay this price by our own strength. All of these disciplines that we're talking about are still, we are still engraced to do them. So it gives us the will and the desire, both to will and to do, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, of God's good pleasure. And lastly, heavenly rewards are given to those who discipline themselves for the sake of serving Christ and winning lost souls. All these things that Paul is doing, if you read through the lines, it's about salvation. I want more people, like Pastor Davis will say, to populate the kingdom of heaven and to depopulate the kingdom of hell. So they keep their bodies under control and they keep their eyes on the go. Now, how does this help us to go back to where we are coming from in chapter 8 and answer the question of food sacrifice to idols? So Paul returns to that in chapter 10 and then he balances it all or ties it together and we'll try to do exactly that as well in chapter 10. Again, I'm going to read, but this time, again, I would read it in, um, in a couple of uh, installments. So I, I might go through it at a, at a stretch so that we don't come back to reading the Bible verses and just dwell on them. Uh, so can I quickly? Yes, please. Okay, right. Th thank you very much. I like the way you quickly went through that uh, chapter nine, which is a very, very good one. So I don't know if people have got questions on that chapter nine. So, because personally, I believe that is one area as a burden that we can also work on. We are really trying on it, but we can equally work on it, just like Pastor said. Mm. Pastor Lukoya said something when he was talking, when he, he also said it to me, then he also said it in his message, if you go and look at it. He said, a close hand can never give, but can, ne can never receive. Mm. And that got me thinking. So if that hand is closed, even though it cannot give, but it cannot also receive because it's closed. And Proverbs 18, 16 says, a man's gift opens doors for him and brings him before great men. So it is very difficult, particularly when you are in UK. It's easier for people in Nigeria. Like Pastor said, with the VIP treatment, I remember the last time I went to a convention when the hotel room that Lorna booked for me wasn't, the security there wasn't good enough. It was one of the members of uh, London Architecture that said, oh, Pastor Davis from, oh. Then they went to go and book a five-star hotel and he paid, I, I never even see that man in, in his face, mm -hmm. in my face. He booked it 
was about uh, 45 or 50,000 pounds per night, a naira per night, and it booked me for like two weeks. Then I looked at it, I said, can people do it in UK? So the problem in the UK is that because people labor so hard to get it, so they make sure they close their hand that they can't from me. <laughs> so that is the that is the that's the thing. But that's one area I believe we, including as everybody, we just need the grace of God. Oh. So the grace of God, the grace of God to help you break those uh, to help us break that phallogram. Now, personally, I believe that God has been able to help us to break through in so many areas, particularly in the areas of push, because of the giving ability that we use as a church. Wow. I remember when one of the fathers came to come and preach. Uh, I will mention this father's name. And they came to preach on the, uh, uh, one of those that, that we did. So we said, right, can we get your account? I said, ah, no, 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 we don't. Uh, I said, no, no, don't bother, don't bother. Okay, please, can we get it? Immediately you get it. Straight away, we landed 250,000 in his account. Immediately call back. The blessings he pronounced on the church. Even Satan would be scared to, to come here, everybody. You know those kind of things. The Bible says when Jesus Christ saw the multitude, he went on the, into the hills. So it, it is like that. And all the leaders in the church, we also know. Sometimes when our, our, the people like we call on push like that, when they, when they, when they finish, some of the fathers, very difficult to ask them, sir, can we get your account number for? We have to write them and say, please, for our whole blessing. Because we look at these people and they, how much are you going to give Pastor Lukoya? How much are you going to give uh, Pastor Wale? Okay. We look at these people and say, that, no, but we insisted that it is, we are not giving because we want them, because they already have, but it's because we want to be blessed. We know the principle that a close hand can never receive and can never give. So each time, see, I remember the, the last time we, the one we gave us, by the time we now get the account number through one of the pastors and we learn the money there, immediately that same night he called. And they say, because, ah, ah, then he blessed all the leaders, he blessed all the church. And by principle and by virtue, it's like uh, that's uh, oil on errands. It goes from the head to the bed and to all the part of it, but it flows to everybody. And that's somehow you might not know. That's when you start seeing breakthrough businesses work because there are people that are pronouncing blessings. So I just thought to quickly say that before Pastor move on, because I know Pastor will not dwell too much on it, but it's an area also where we are working out on it, but we can equally do a lot and not struggle with the Holy Spirit on it. Amen. Thank you very much, sir. Any other remarks or questions um, on chapter nine before we move on into chapter 10? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, we can, but it Yeah, I want you to talk about the last verse in that, in that chapter. Dabunapo was saying after I preached that I myself do not be disqualified. Yeah. I want you to do a CGNCI, or is it is it emphasizing on discipline? I don't know. Maybe yeah, no, the, the point the point is yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I said I was going to do it. I thought I put it on the slide, but I didn't. So the analogy that Paul was using um, in that passage, sister, I know we see you, and let me just quickly respond to this. Um, he was coming with the analogy of the of the of the race, which again, like I said, they are familiar with that in in the Jewish custom. I mean, in the in the context of the Greeks in the first in the Corinthian city that we're talking about here, 
And what it looks like in those kind of races is that there is what you could call, they call it, they call it an herald, someone that announces um, the name of the contestants and in the city they are coming from and things like that. And at the end of the race, they also will be the one to announce the winners and also announce the castaways. Now, one of the one of the conditions to enroll in that race in the first instance is that you must be a citizen, a, a, a Roman citizen in the first instance, or a Greek citizen, so to speak. And then you contest in the race, but for whatever reason, maybe you missed the point when you should start or you disobey the rules, you become one of the castaways. So it's what you would see as disqualified, so to speak. But their disqualification does not this citizen them. Their citizenship is intact. It is the award that they are supposed to receive because they have not been disciplined enough in whatever regards by violating any of those rules that they forfeit. And so what Paul is saying there as he applies to our salvation is that, yes, you are now a child of God. You are now part of the commonwealth of Israel. You are now part of the kingdom of heaven citizens, if you, if you will. That is why you are running the race to start with. But it is possible to engage in that race and at the end of the day to not and or win the rewards that you could or that you have the potential of winning. Um, the Nigerian young chap that's contested in this last Olympics for the 100 meters got to the very final. By God's grace, we, we is, is on a group where uh, 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 my wife and I are leading. And he got to the finals and we were really hopeful and, and all of that for him. But halfway into the 100 meters, he had a muzzle pull and was pulled out. He was disqualified because he did not finish. But of course, he still remains a Nigerian and he will still go on to continue to represent Nigeria in other competitions and he's still one of the best in Africa at the moment. So that's, that's the analogy, basically. But some people have taken that context to say, even Paul is saying with all the things that he accomplished, he can miss heaven. That's not what he's saying. But by that castaway phrase, those in, that he's writing to is not a strange phrase to them. It's a phrase to that they are very familiar with and they won't misconstrue what he's talking about. When we get to verse and chapter 10, it goes back to mention it in a way. And we, that's actually where I think I've included it on the slides to also say one or two more words on that. I hope that's helpful. Sister, I know you were raising your hand. Yes, so, I was going to say that in light, in light of the fact that all of us are busy and things, and we might forget to actually nurture the people that are blessing us spiritually. Would it help that we have a team dedicated to nurturing our pastors and our leaders so that when such discussions comes up in the future, we are content and satisfied that we have we have some we have some people taking care of this part and we're not like guilty of the lack, so to say. Thank you. See, um, it seems Paul Paul is talking about the leadership only. What about the followership? See, they both have responsibility uh -huh. to this work of God. Uh -huh. Paul is talking about about his own. I mean, from his own side, his own angle. He, he, he didn't demand. He didn't ask for anything. He ask for anything, but he preached the gospel. He said it would be worth to him if he did it, and his joy is preaching the gospel, whatever now comes by it. Now, although as human being, he might be comparing himself to other uh, apostles, the, the apostles of the Lamb from Jerusalem. But at the same time, 
he, he is saying that he didn't ask. So the fact that he's defending that, okay, power and authority goes with a goal with discipline. You have to discipline yourself, talking about the leadership, and then sacrifice for the reward, the crown that, he, that, that we are all uh, chasing after. That, that, that it goes by sacrifice. Nothing comes easy. You must have sacrifice, you must discipline yourself. Then on the side of the followership, on the side of the followership, the Corinthian members of his church, they have a duty that will be prompted by the spirit of God, by the word of God they hear, by the spirit of God that will come and the word of God is life and the spirit is life. Now the spirit will be teaching them, we prompt them to do what is right. Now to take care of, of the leaders, you know. I mean, in Nigeria, we know we know we know what the what the church or what the assemblies do for their pastors. Every month is in their returns. In the leadership, we we we, we provide for the house of faith for the for the mission house. They do it everywhere. Uh, it, it is laid down now, not 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 by them asking, like Paul was saying. But is it not right? Should, should he not eat where he's working, where he's laboring? You see? So, but then the fruit of his labor, of his preaching, of the salvation the people have, then they have to start the work of their salvation with trembling and fear. Not, not, not that they are working for their salvation, but after they have been saved, then they need to work. And the part of the work is look after the leadership, the preacher, the, the you know, so, so it goes with, you know, for the for the reward, yes, reward for both leaders and the followers. You know, we 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 are we work in heaven, but then we will work here, we work for our salvation here. It, it is free, but after we are saved, we begin the work. So this is what Paul is saying. I, I appreciate that he's talking about himself as leader and the other apostles. But what about those? Uh, that's like sister who spoke last said that we must make sure the the, 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 the the assembly must make sure they take care of the leaders, you know, providing like they do in Ketu. I, I happen to know they provide for the house of faith there, for the mission house. So I think we have, we have, we have a responsibility to that because it's, it's part of the discipline, part of the sacrifice for the reward we are both both leadership and followership, the, the reward we are open at, the crown. So, so I think we both have responsibilities and we are free. Paul is talking about freedom. You are free to choose, but the spirit of God will lead, you know, and the choices we will make. That's just, you know, what sums up the chapter, chapter nine. Thank you very much, sir. For Auntie Anna's question as well, um, the, the, the angle I just wanted to add was, I mean, whatever structure is being put in place, at the end of the day, still, the responsibility still comes back to fall on the members. So even say, for instance, um, a, a structure was put in place whereby the responsibility, so to speak, seemed to be transferred to some people to see to it. I would rather that we see that individual responsibilities first, because at the end of the day, it will still take some individuals to say, for instance, fund whatever activities those other people would be doing. Um, and really, I think it's the challenge, it should be a challenge to us to not 
shift this responsibility if, if possible. The church can have a structure, absolutely, um, just like Daddy uh, just said now. But at the end of the day, it would, the point that Paul was making in passing, even though that was not his point, his point was going to make this point to then say, I'm denying myself of those rights. But in, in, in a sense, possibly also denying them of the, the potential of being blessed from how they would have been blessed if they have done that. But the point where I'm going is it is a responsibility that is individual. It's first and primarily an individual responsibility that if you are being blessed, then you should reciprocate. Um, and Paul will say it again to the Galatians, he will say it in some way to the Ephesians, he's saying it again now to the Corinthians, and of course, God is saying it to us as well. So just to emphasize that individuality of it um, before we begin to talk of the corporateness of it as well. Yeah. Pastor, I don't know if there's something you want to add to that. Uh, thank you. Sir. Uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, is uh, the Holy Spirit will interpret it more for us. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm looking at the time, so we'll get on to chapter ten. We'll see um, how far we can go to to wrap it all up. First Corinthians chapter ten uh, it says, "For we must never forget." So chapter eight, food sacrifice to idols. Chapter nine, Paul gives an example of himself with regards to issues of his rights financially, which is denying himself of. And then he moves on to chapter 10 to complete what he started in chapter 8 to speak into that specific issue. So that's one. But we must never forget, dear brothers, what happened to our people in the wilderness long ago. God guided them by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them. He brought them all safely through the waters of the Red Sea. This might be called their baptism in a manner of speaking, because they were baptized both in the sea and in the cloud that signifies God's presence. As followers of Moses and their commitment to him as their leader, that's three to four. By a miracle, God sent them food to eat. He's talking of this like of course. God sent them food to eat, water to drink. They drank the water that Christ gave them because he was there with them as a mighty era for spiritual refreshment. That's fine. Yet after all this, most of them did not obey God. And so God destroyed them in the wilderness. Mm. But this lesson, we are warned first and foremost that we must not desire evil things as they did and that we must not worship idols as they did. Because the scripture tells us the people sat down to eat, to drink, they got up to dance that golden image that uh, Aaron made for them. That's it. Another lesson for us is what happened when some of them sinned with other men's wives and 23,000 fell dead in one day. You remember the story from when we were doing the book of Jude and we mentioned how this is part of the aftermath of what Balaam did. And then verse 9, don't try the Lord's patience. They did, and they died from snake bites. You remember the issue of the, the episode of the snake bites as well in the book of Numbers. Verse 10, and don't murmur against God and his dealings with you, as some of them did. And for that is why God sent his angel to destroy them. All these things, these things that happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament, they happened to them as examples for us, as object lessons to us, to warn us against doing the same things. They were written down so that we could read about them, learn from them in these last days as the world nears its end. That's 12. So be careful. If you are thinking, oh, I will never behave like that, let this be a warning to you, for you too may fall into sin. If you are thinking, oh, the fact that I'm doing something like this or drinking this or eating that or wearing this, it's got nothing to do with anything, let this be a warning to you, for you too may fall into sin. The fact that I'm watching this kind of TV series or that kind of TV series doesn't have anything to do on my on the salvation of my soul. Watch out and let this be a warning to you for you to 
may fall into sin. That verse 12 in the KJV says, um, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Some of us will remember it like that. Verse 13. But remember this. The wrong desires that come into our life, they are not anything new and different. Many others have faced exactly the same problems before us, and no temptation is irresistible. You can trust God to keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. For he has promised this and he will do what he says. He will show you how to escape the temptation's power so that you can bear up patiently against it. So dear friends, verse 14, carefully avoid idol worship of every kind. Remember in chapter 8, he already said it, that the gods are dead. The gods are nothing. But now he's bringing a balance to all these things and you see the way he ties it together. Verse 15, you are intelligent people. You are Corinthians, isn't it? You are Greeks. You know these things. Look now and see for yourselves whether what I'm about to say is true. Verse 16. When we ask the Lord's blessing upon our drinking from the cup of wine at the Lord's table, in other words, the Holy Communion, this means, doesn't it, that all who drink it are sharing together the blessing of Christ's blood. Because when we drink it, we say we are drinking the blood of Christ, right? And when we break off pieces of the bread from the loaf to eat there together, this again shows that we are sharing together in the benefits of Christ's body. We say that when we take the Holy Communion, that the bread that is broken is signifying the body of Christ that was broken for us. Verse 17, no matter how many of us there are, we all eat from the same loaf, showing that we are all part of the one body of Christ. That's how communion was done then um, in the context uh, that, that they lived in. Verse 18, and the Jewish people, all who eat the sacrifices are united by that act. What am I trying to say is this. I'm saying that the idols to whom the Eden brings, am I saying that the idols to whom the Eden brings sacrifices are really alive and that they are real gods and that these sacrifices are of some value? No, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. The gods are dead, yeah? But verse 20, what I'm saying is that those who offer food to these idols, they are also united together in sacrificing to demons, certainly not to God. And I don't want any of you to be partners with demons when you eat the same food, along with the hidden that has been offered to these idols. It's making them see something that they might not have been cognizant of. When we say the gods are dead, that's true. But the fact is when some people are claiming to worship a certain god that is not existing, the fallen angels that have become demons and all those things will come to receive that and to some extent have some power to manipulate on the ignorance of believers to some degree and to some extent. That's why we talk about spiritual warfare. There wouldn't be spiritual warfare, there are no demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink from the cup at the Lord's table and at Satan's table as well. You cannot eat bread both at the Lord's table and at Satan's table. What? Are you tempting the Lord to be hungry with you? Are you stronger than he is? Now, if you are listening so far, you see that it's sounding like Paul is beginning to say, actually, that food that you sacrifice to idols, don't eat it. But that's not where it's going. Just watch and see how he brilliantly ties it together. Now, now from verse 23. And don't forget that this is a specific issue, a specific issue that is not really of value to us or that we are not concerned against. Go and see money upstairs, okay? I'll see you soon. Verse 23, you are certainly free to eat food offered to idols if you want to. It's not against God's laws to eat such meats. But that doesn't mean that you should go ahead and do it. It may be perfectly legal, but it may not be best and helpful. Don't think only of yourself. Try to think of the other fellow too and what is best for that person. So here is what you should do. Take any meat that you want that is sold at the market. 
don't ask whether or not it was offered to idols, lest they answer out your conscience. Remember, I said in the beginning of chapter 8 study that there are two sources of meat, and the meat that have been sacrificed to idols that these Christians go to buy is cheaper. And it's saying that when you go to the market and you see the, the meat that you normally get for 20 pounds, they say you should come and buy it for five pounds. Don't ask that. Is it cheap because it has been sacrificed to idols? You just buy it with Thanksgiving and go. You don't need that information. Don't ask whether or not it was offered to idols. Let the answer hurt your conscience. For the heart and every good thing in it belongs to the Lord and it's just to enjoy. But if someone who is not a Christian asks you out to dinner, Go ahead and accept the invitation if you want to. And eat whatever is on the table. And don't ask them any questions about it. Then you will not know whether or not it has been used as a sacrifice to idols. And you will not risk having a bad conscience over eating it. But then there is one more case study. If someone wants you that this meat has been offered to idols, especially if that person is supposedly a weak Christian and say, ah, this thing that you're about to eat, ah, they've sacrificed you to idols. That's not the time to start giving the person exigencies on why you can still eat it. Don't eat it for the sake of that person who told you and because of that person's conscience, even though you yourself know that this is nothing. Verse 29, in this case, his feeling about it is the important thing, not your own feelings. But why, you may ask, why must I be guided and limited by what someone else thinks? <laughs> if I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why let someone else spoil everything just because he thinks I'm wrong? Why let someone else spoil the fun that I can get from wearing or dressing this way and I feel good with it, but because the person thinks I'm wrong, they're telling me I can't do it. Why must I not be able to feel free to watch this movie that I know I can watch and feel good just because someone else thinks it's wrong? Paul said, well, I'll tell you why. Here's the reason. It is because you must do everything for the glory of God. Even your eating and your drinking, in conclusion. So don't be a stumbling, stumbling block to anyone, whether they are Jews, whether they are Gentiles, whether they are Christians. That's the plan that I, Paul, follow as well. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not doing, like, not doing what I like or what is best for me, but what is best for them so that they may be saved. Isn't that very explanatory? That's 33 verses that we read through, and it sounded just like you are listening to Paul preach the message to us. Let me quickly point out in that last verse when he says, I try to please everyone in everything. That is not by any means implying that he's trying to be a man pleaser. He has said it categorically from, I think, chapter one uh, or chapter two, that he is not into all that. The only person he wants to satisfy is God. But again, in his relationship with human beings, evangelism is for us to build bridges, not walls. It's to ensure that we can take people from where they are, by God's grace, to where they should be at the foot of the cross, from where the journey begins and they continue to be transformed. So basically, Paul is mentioning here that their experience should be balanced by caution. He has talked earlier on how that their knowledge should be balanced by love. Their authority should be balanced by discipline. But now he's saying their experience, the fact that they, they, they have this liberty and they know about it, they are experienced in these things. They know the Old Testament. But then also take the cautions from that Old Testament that you have. Because at this time, there were no Bibles. All they have as scripture is the Old Testament. So Paul reminded them that they should not be overconfident in their ability to overcome temptation. 
And this is a tendency that we could have when we begin to get mature spiritually. We can begin to think, ah, that one is beneath me. I can't ever fall into this temptation again. I can't ever do that. I can't ever do this and all that. And that might be true, but the posture that the believer takes is never the posture of I can't fall into temptation. There's a reason why part of what Jesus gave in the template prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer is lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. It's, because, it's not because we can't overcome temptations, but because the posture every child of God should take in his spiritual growth should be that I know that I am vulnerable and God is the only one that strengthens me. So as much as possible, God, don't even lead me into circumstances that will be tempting. And of course, I shouldn't partner with the devil to walk myself into such circumstances as the case may be. So Paul used the nation of Israel as an example to warn them about few things. The first warning is that privileges don't guarantee success. These people were privileged. God parted the Red Sea for them, did all those 10 plagues that was affecting Egyptians and they were living inside Egypt and their own area in Goshen was always exempted. And then he brought them out by the mighty hand, led them through the Red Sea, which was a kind of baptism. And Paul was actually painting images here that the Corinthians can link up with in their salvation journey. I won't go into all of that because of our time. But in spite of all these privileges, all of those generations that left Egypt, that were 20 years and above, they all died before they got to the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb. Every other person that made it into the promised land were those young folks that were less than 20 years when they left Egypt, but had now grown up in those 40 years that they spent to become 60 and under. And so it's, it's a warning to us that the privileges that we now receive by reason of our maturity and growth in spiritual things does not guarantee success ultimately. The second warning is that good beginnings do not guarantee good endings. Again, the Israelites started well, but in that journey of 40 years, all sorts of things crept in along the line, mostly because of their, their, um, their carelessness, so to speak, in their dealings with God. And of course, they were judged for it. It led to the death of very many of them. The third warning to pick from there is that God can enable us to overcome temptation if we eat his word. And, and like I was saying before, the second point there says the believer who thinks he can stand may fall, but the believer who flees will be able to stand. That's, that's the spiritual principle. If you are always maintaining that stance of I want to flee from temptation, by God's grace you will stand. Even if you are faced with the temptation, it will be more than you can bear. And God will help you to see the way of escape out of it. But we have that confidence of I've reached a certain level. I can't be tempted. I remember being in school um, in during my undergraduate days, and someone was evangelizing before the lecturer came for the class. You know how some students would just go in front of the whole class and preach. And the guy was preaching and he was telling everybody about Christ. And then he made a statement that if he goes to a female hostel and all the females are naked, nothing will happen to him because he has the grace of God. And I'm like, that's the most foolish statement you can say in an evangelistic message. Irrespective of every other thing you've been saying before, let him that thinks he stands, take it, lest he falls. And finally, I want to just round it up on those questions that we can use because we must balance this um, freedom that we have by responsibility. And one of those responsibilities is that we have a responsibility to build others up in the faith and to seek the advantage. We have a responsibility to glorify God 
in everything that we do. And we have a responsibility to win lost souls, to populate the kingdom of God and depopulate the kingdom of hell. And that should lead us to some concluding thoughts. I know that I have to just skip a few things uh, because of time. There are some things that a mature Christian can do in the privacy of his own home that he will not do in public. And that's okay, provided that it doesn't harm him personally and it doesn't tempt the Lord. So some of these things that we are saying, we're not exactly saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do it. You can do them as long as there's no one around that can, their issue of conscience can come into play. Secondly, as Christians, we do have the freedom purchased for us by Jesus Christ, but that freedom comes from knowledge, and that knowledge must be balanced by love. We said that last week. Thirdly, the strong Christian does not only have knowledge, they also have experience, but that experience must be balanced with all those cautions that we've seen from the Old Testament. And when we take everything we've learned in verse 8 and chapters 8, 9, and 10 together, it leads us to these five questions that I will leave us with. And I can also post them on the, on the WhatsApp group if you want to see them again after now. That's, that matter, whatever matter it, it might be, that disputable matter, before you decide on it, ask yourself, will it lead to freedom or save slavery? Will it lead me to enjoy my freedom or does it have the tendency to actually enslave me? Secondly, will they make me a stumbling, stumbling block or a stepping stone? If someone that is, quote unquote, a weak Christian sees me doing them, will it edify that person or will it make me a stumbling block that corrupts the conscience of that person and perhaps potentially influences that person to act against his conscience? Thirdly, would they build me up or tear me down myself? Is this something that can self-destroy me? Or is this something that actually has the capacity to edify me? Will it increase my spirit or just my flesh? Fourthly, would they only please me or would they glorify Christ? And that's one of Paul's motivations that was very clear in all of these things. And lastly, would they help me to win lost souls to Christ? Or would they turn them away? Or would they stand in the way of them coming to know the Lord? These five test questions can help us. And whatever all those contemporary questions or issues that I brought up at the beginning and many more can be for us to ask ourselves these questions honestly by the Holy Spirit's um, help and influence and to respond to them. And you will know where you should stand. You will know things that you can do when it's just you and people that have the same level of understanding as you. And you know that there are some things that you can't even just do Come what may, in as much as you know that you have the liberty and the right to do them. And may the Lord help us in Jesus' name. At the end of the day, the way we use our freedom and relate to others indicates whether we are mature in Christ or not. And my prayer is that God will help us to work together in love with other believers, weak or strong, to edify one another and to glorify Christ in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Um, I know that our time is fast spent. Maybe if we have questions, we can start with them next week before we move on to the next chapter so that God Peter can take over for the prayer session. Pastor, any questions what you thought that? Uh, yes, thank you, sir. I, yeah, we, I was going to say exactly the same thing because I know that we didn't take questions in that text so that we, we were short of time. Uh, but uh, just before I, uh, Evangelist Peter carry on, I think there was a question Evangelist Peter asked. I think you answered it, but I'm not sure if uh, Evangelist Peter wants to say something about it. Is that no, about think, 1 Corinthians 9, 27? Yeah. Are, we, is, are we clear with that? Yeah. Okay. All right. So the only thing I will add to that, 
with the first Corinthians 9 27. So it's tough because it's a very controversial passage, the interpretation, but we judge it in light of the other scriptures that were given. And also the other areas I was looking at it now from ERV version. That gives me clarity. In ERV version, 1 Corinthians 9 27 say, it is my own body I fight to make to do what I want. I say, I do this so that I won't miss getting the price mm. myself after telling others about the price. Mm. So to this once put it, give us a picture of like, it's a price. It's not the service, the price. And also if we read Romans 8, Romans 8 gave us an idea. Romans 8, 38 to 39, so what will separate us from the love of Christ? Is it dead? Is it this? He listed them. He said, all these things, we are very confident that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Second Timothy 1 12. We have so many verses that actually supported that, that issue. So I'm very glad that we really do understand it. Then also, just to just portray one thing about what Pastor said now, before we pray, just one minute is the the thing that keep coming to my to my mind from that verse from chapter ten is the selective holiness. So that's the reason why we need the grace of God to avoid selective holiness. Some people believe that once they are not uh, doing fornication and, and all of that, then they are uh, that's holiness. Mm. That is the problem that the likes of uh, uh, Gears has. Gears believe that he, he actually must have preached against Samson, but he doesn't know that in his heart he has covetousness, and that destroyed him. Uh, King Saul, he actually was the one telling everybody that this, uh, this uh, David is a very proud man. He was one that lifted into that position and all of that. Everybody must have said he was so proud, but he doesn't know that in him he has a spirit of envy and jealousy. What about Judas? He, he did all those, all the great things, miracles, signs and wonders. It was part of the people that, part of the disciples that Jesus Christ sent out, giving them power over unclean spirits. But eventually it was greed that sent him to hell. So selective holiness. And what do we say in summary to what Pastor just preached there in 1 Corinthians 10, is to rely on Jesus. Just rely, go back to the cross daily. Die to yourself daily and say, God, I cannot do it. I depend on you to help me, and it will help you. That's all I will say to that. The Lord bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.